The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I am Sheila Murthy, president and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us for this afternoon's session about the H-1B cap, how the process works, uh, and a few updates on what we're seeing since the change from the Trump to the Biden administration. I have with me uh, today two of our esteemed colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm, Kenya Sanders, who's got over 25 years of immigration law experience, brilliant colleague and a coordinator in the H-1B non-immigrant department. And joining her is another esteemed and brilliant colleague at the Murthy Law Firm, who has over a decade of experience and also a coordinator at, our, at the Murthy Law Firm for the H-1B non-immigrant department, TJ, uh, whom we call, refer to as TJ, though his real name is Timothy Sachet. Uh, Delighted to have all of you. Let me just give a brief, quick update on what potential changes we're seeing to the possibly to the lottery process, because that's the first question that everybody's asking and wanting to get to. And then we will get to going over uh, all of the updates and, you know, what is the same, pretty much all the other stuff that we are seeing in terms of, you know, lottery selections, et cetera, based on last year. So what is, what is the potential change that we expect to the lottery process? Under the possible new rule, and we say that because we're, nobody's 100% clear which rule and what's going to happen, and we're expecting something in the next couple of days, uh, hopefully by the first week of February, but there will still be a master's cap and a regular cap. However, the selection is not supposed to be random anymore. It's no longer supposed to be the random lottery system. Rather, if the prior Trump administration's rule is finalized, then H-1B registrations would be ranked based on the highest wage levels, uh, which is being offered as a salary with respect to the relevant SOC code. So again, just to be clear, this does not mean that H-1B registrations would be ranked just based on comparing all of the proposed salaries with the submitted pre-registrations. Rather, they will be ranked based on the potential wage level. So, for example, uh, let's say that you as an employer will propose a plan to hire a pharmacist in New York City with a proposed salary of $150,000. The highest wage level that, would, that could equal would be wage level two. That same position in a rural part of Alabama, however, may equate to a wage level four position. So the registration submitted for that pharmacist in Alabama would be ranked higher and therefore potentially under that new rule, if it became the rule, would then have a higher chance of being selected then the same exact filing for the same position, same salary, same job duties in New York City. So in practice, this would change not only how registrations are selected, but also how they will be submitted. 
And as you all know, the Biden administration has postponed this rule until at least March 21st, 2021. And we heard that there could be additional changes because Department of Labor, as of earlier this week, pretty much said it may be until postponed until May, middle of May of 2021. We believe it is highly unlikely to take effect for this fiscal 2022 cap season, but stay tuned. I'm sure we'll all hear some update one way or the other because they need to, the USCI needs to release the latest system that they plan to, to use. So with that, let's go to the fundamentals of what is the H-1B cap and how does it work? So TJ, if I can ask you to get started. Sure. So, I mean, we're, we're thinking that the, that the new, you know, wage-based system will not come into effect this year. I really can't see how it will, how they can update mm-hmm. their systems and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, if they don't, it'll just be the same as, as they did last year, and I'm sure many of our listeners recall that all quite too well, um, where essentially you just register your H-1B petition and uh, submit it, just give them a piece, couple pieces of information, and if you are, and that happens between March 1st and March 20th, we're assuming if the process is the same this year, it would be March 1st to March 20th again, and then you would have, um, if you're selected, then you would have until June 30th to file your H-1B petition. Now, in general, H-1, the H-1B cap is just, you know, an annual limit on the number of new H-1B workers, and that's set at 65,000 um, numbers per year, per fiscal year. Um, however, only 58,500 cap numbers are generally available because they pull some out for nationals of Chile and Singapore. And then in addition to that, there are 20,000 extra slots for individuals who have completed a master's degree from a U.S. nonprofit or public university. It's also got to be an accredited institution. Um, and then so once the regular cap is met, those with a U.S. master's degree from an accredited nonprofit university are eligible to be selected under the 20,000 master's quota. One thing to really be, be aware of, and, and, and we saw this a, a lot more in the past, is that USCIS is highly scrutinizing those cases that file their H-1B petition under the cap. So this year, uh, you know, the registration system, you register your, your H-1B under the regular cap or the um, or the master's cap, and then when you do file your petition, you would have to either include uh, include evidence um, of that you meet the requirements of a master, of the master's cap. Um, but one thing to be aware of is really be sure that you actually do qualify under the master's cap. So what happened in the past, a lot of people would file H-1B petitions saying they're eligible for the master's cap because they have a master's degree from a for-profit university. So those cases were getting approved, and you're seeing two years later, USCIS comes back and issues a notice of intent to revoke saying you weren't properly filed under the master's cap. So that's just one thing to be aware of when you do get ready to register your H-1B case. Sounds great. Thank you so much, DJ. And just to go back to the issue of the selection process for fiscal 2022, yes, we don't know how it's going to work, what exactly is going to happen. We expect it to be, you know, within that March timeframe. But I thought there was a recollection or a requirement for 30 days notification, minimum 30 day prior notification, and then an additional 90 day period to file the H-1B petition once uh, if the registration has been selected. I understand, obviously, that this session is not going to focus on a lot of that because we are not 100% sure whether it's going to be last year's system or some other new variation, like I discussed earlier. 
Was there a minimum 30-day time frame so that employers could plan? Because it seems like it's already February, you know, early February right now. So I don't understand or see how they could do it from March 1st to March 20th, maybe the end of March, and then they'll kind of give us that 90-day time frame to file. Right. I mean, I think if they do need to do this new wage-based system, it's going to be a lot of technical work, right? I mean, they're going to hire H-1B mm-hmm. workers to do that. Um, and to get that in place in time for the March 1st to March 20th registration, I just, I, I just don't see it happening. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of really bizarre. So this is something we'll probably be ending up doing some kind of an update, hopefully before the end of this week, if some information is released on that. Thank you so much, DJ. Kenya, if I can jump to you. So in terms of fiscal 2022, fiscal year starts October 1st uh, of each year. So how can, when can the employer file? When can, what do they have to put as a start date? Some of this is basic stuff for the regulars, but for either new employers or those who just want a quick update because everything's so confusing, this is a wonderful refresher. Kenya? Sure, absolutely. So the cap numbers uh, become available at the beginning of the fiscal year. So for this fiscal year, which is for fiscal year 2022, it starts on October 1, 2021. So, uh, so the earliest start date uh, for this um, uh, cap subject uh, H-1B petitions has to be October 1, 2021. However, the petition can be filed six months ahead of time. So in the past, when we did not have the registration system, the the petitions, H-1B cap subject petitions were filed within the first week of April. Now with the new registration system, if we are going by how it was done last year, the cases that are going to be filed for the fiscal year are registered within a three-week period in March. And once they are selected, like last year, they announced the last week in March, the, the cases that were selected for that fiscal year and were given a 90-day period. And the 90-day period started from April 1 and went on until June 30th. So you had to file within that 90-day period with a start date requesting October 1, 2021. So even if the petition is filed and if it's approved before October 1, 2021, it will have an effective start date of October 1, 2021, and um, the, the individual cannot start working until that date. Now, one thing to remember is if, if they're going to do the same thing this year as last year, USCIS re- required that all H-1B petitions that were filed for the fiscal year have an effective start date of October 1, October 1, you know, 2021, or you know, last year it was 2020. Even if you're filing the case after October 1, you still had to put October 1 as the start date. Otherwise, they were rejecting the cases. So it was, you know, it was rather unusual, but that is how what USCIS required. Um, and, and cases were rejected that were filed even well after October 1, um, asking, you know, for a start date that was after October 1, those cases were rejected. So that's something to keep in mind 
um, and make sure that you know, whatever USCIS requires, however absurd it may seem, that we have to follow that um, so that you know we don't get the cases rejected. Or we can challenge the federal government, unfortunately, over and over and over again, like only because the rules they came out with almost seem like flimsy excuses to deny or reject a case improperly. Because before that, I mean, we've been, our firm's been around for 26 years, the multi-law firm, over a quarter of a century. I've been practicing several years before that. We've never seen denials or rejections solely based on a start date, and that only happened last year. But anyway, that's beyond the scope of this. Let's go. I know we are very mindful of the time. And so the next question, of course, always often we get asked is, you know, can I be exempt from the cap? Who is subject to the cap? Why can't I be exempt? What is exemption? Who applies? So in general, if the employee or the beneficiary has never had H-1B status in the past, generally that person should be subject to the H-1B cap or quota. However, a person who was previously counted against the cap, but if that, that person was outside of the United States for at least one full year, continuous year, then that individual beneficiary could choose either to be counted against the cap to receive the full six years in H-1B status all over again, or the person is allowed to choose to use the remainder of the six years from his or her prior petitions. If the person had used two years, they have four years left. They can come back for the four years and hopefully file, start the green card process in that time so they can get future extensions after that. Of course, doctors, physicians who have obtained a J-1 waiver through either the Conrad program or the interested governmental agency programs are cap exempt. That was issued under the law, that was passed under the law. And also some employers are routinely cap exempt Usually we think of universities and hospitals connected with universities, institutions of higher education, but also employment at or by the university. So even if it's not the university as the main employer, but you're a consulting company that has placed your employee at a university or at a hospital uh, or one of their nonprofit affiliates, as well as certain nonprofit governmental research organizations, uh, those very well could be subject to the CAP exemption, H-1B CAP exemption, and hence not required to file within that narrow window of time in the lottery as we were just talking about with TJ and Kanya a few minutes ago. So with that, let me go next to the topic of what is required to qualify for an H-1B petition. Uh, what's the definition of specialty occupation, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm going to ask... Um, Either TJ or I, I guess one of us could jump in, but TJ, did you want to take that? Sure. So, I mean, one of the biggest things you need to show when you're filing an H-1B petition is that the H-1B job itself is a specialty occupation, and that's a position that must require a bachelor's degree, at least a bachelor's degree or higher in a specific field of study. Um, another big thing is also just to show that the uh, individual is actually qualified for the position based on their education at the time of filing. Um, but merely because the person has that degree that is required for the job doesn't mean that USCIS will find that the job is actually a specialty occupation. Um, because if, you know, if a position requires a degree in any field of study, 
you know, just a general bachelor's degree, that's not going to be, you know, specific enough to meet the specialty occupation requirement. And then in regards to attempting to show that someone is qualified for the position itself, you need to show that they have a bachelor's degree or its equivalent at the time of filing. You can even show that the combination of their education and experience is is related to the job and qualifies them for the job. And what you want to do in those situations is get a, an education experience evaluation from a professor in the field who has the authority to grant college-level credit for that training and experience. And they would say, hey, yeah, this job is one that requires at least, I'm sorry, that this individual, their combination of education and experience is the equivalent of a bachelor's degree in you know, computer information systems or something like that that is related to the job. And then there's another thing that, you know, if the individual doesn't actually possess the degree certificate itself at the time of filing, but they have, you know, met all the requirements for graduation, right? You know, you, you, um, you're filing your cap case in the past, you would file it on April 1st, and they actually finished all their program requirements December the year before, but haven't walked the stage, haven't gotten their diploma. So in that case, what you want to do is you just want to get a letter from the school, generally the registrar or something like that, that says, yes, the degree has been uh, granted, they just haven't walked the stage and don't have the actual diploma. And that's usually good enough to show that the degree has actually been awarded, that at the time of filing, they actually, the person actually has that education. Another thing to be aware of is with this new registration process is, you know, you're registering between March 1st and March 20th. Well, a lot of people don't even graduate until, you know, May 30th, early June, something like that. And so let's say you have someone that doesn't have a bachelor's degree at the time you register, but they anticipate getting their degree May 30th um, of that year. You could still file for them. Um, you could still register for them. What you want to do is you want to make sure that you do not file that HOB cap case until that degree is awarded during the filing period. So you have between April 1st to June 30th, but if they don't have that degree till May 15th, do not file that cap case in April. Wait till May 15th when they're awarded the degree to show that at the time of filing they are qualified for this job. So that's one benefit of the registration system. You can register before they actually have the degree. Just make sure you file it during the filing period, but after the degree has been awarded. Thank you, TJ. So, Penya, since you seem to be the timing expert here, when should the H-1B <laughs> employer actually start preparing for the H-1K? Well, okay. okay. Sure. Um, as, we, you know, as we have been discussing here with the new registration system, the, you know, the cases are picked in March, and USCIS gives you from April 1 to June 30th to file the case. So, um, you, you know, so even though you have 90 days, to file the case, there are so, so many things you have to take into consideration. First of all, uh, you know, an H-1B petition, you know, has to be carefully prepared because there's a very heightened scrutiny in the last few days um, of the, you know, of the H-1B petition. And USCIS, you know, has really um, had made it very difficult. Um, you know, bringing in new standards, you know, higher complex, you know, um, interpretations of the law, uh, and also like certain uh, occupations, the classification, US, you know, it's it, it even heightened scrutiny. Um, a, and USCIS tries to argue they're not specialty occupations, 
and one of them is a computer system analyst position. So because of that, it's, you know, it's important, even though you have a three-month period, that you begin the case, you know, preparing for the case as you know, soon as uh, the, the petition, uh, you know, the, the individual is selected in the lottery, so it can be uh, you know, carefully analyzed and a, a well-prepared petition can be filed. Another thing that one has to keep in mind also is the beneficiary status. Um, if the person is in the U.S. Um, and when their status is going to expire, you need to make sure that the petition is filed prior to that. Um, and I know TJ is going to talk about that issue because that is another major issue to keep in mind as to when to start preparing the case and when to file it. Right. I think I'm going to jump in and then TJ can jump in right after yes. me, Kenya. So yes, that's the yes, question sir. is what happens if the beneficiary's uh, status is expiring before October 1st or after October 1st? What are the time frames? Because man, man, many of the students, many of those who are trying to file a CAF subject petition generally tend to be F1 students doing pursuing full-time study. So let's just go quickly over the different time frames so everyone's on the same page. So the employee or beneficiary is able to change to H1B requesting an October 1st start date only if the prior non-immigrant status will continue until at least September 30th of, 20, of that particular year. In this case, it's 2021. So if the employee slash beneficiary is in HF1 status, uh, then there's sli some slight difference. Because if the F1 status or the optional practical training ends even before September 30th, then the student or the optional practical, the trainee, may still be eligible for something referred to as automatic cap, gap extension until September 30th, assuming that four conditions are met or satisfied. The first is that the petition is filed, the new H-1 petition is filed before the expiration of the optional practical training or before the end of the grace period. Two, that the change of status is requested on the H-1B petition itself. Three, that it has an October 1st start date is requested, which may actually connect to the previous reason they were rejecting many of the other cases, who knows. And four, the case is ultimately or eventually approved. So to be eligible for CAP-GAP under the registration process, a student selected in the registration and whose F-1 status or OPT status ends during the 90-day period to file the, CAP, the H-1 CAP petition must file the petition before the end of the status or before the OPT expires, regardless of when the 90-day period ends. Uh, because for these situations, it is important to have prepared the H-1 petition as early as possible to ensure eligibility for CAP-GAP, though you do have the other problem that TJ just referred if you haven't actually graduated, then you're caught, I guess, between a rock and a hard place. There are several steps involved in preparing an H-1 petition, as you all know, including preparing the LCA and submitting with the Department of Labor, getting that approved. And historically, there have been delays and technical glitches of various kinds with the Department of Labor's flag system for processing LCAs. So the later a case is prepared and filed, the more likely that you as the employer 
may run into the risk of not getting the LCA filed in time to file the CAP subject petition before the end of the F1 status or prior to the uh, OPT expiring. So next I'm going to have uh, TJ jump in to explaining what this means and how it actually works with the OPT students. Sure. So it's, it's really important to really get that H-1B petition, CAP petition filed, especially when someone is on their OPT or their STEM OPT, because if the H-1B petition is filed before the end of the STEM OPT or the OPT, whatever it may be, their work authorization is automatically extended until September 30th of that year. Um, and if, but if the student's not in OPT, so let's say the OPT ends on April 5th and then they're in their, you know, their 60-day F1 grace period and they file the H-1B cap case then, well, they can remain until September 30th, but they cannot continue to work. So it's really important to file it before the OPT expires to ensure that you get that continued work authorization. And then after September 30th, so October 1st on, if the H-1B petition is not you know, there's the decision is not made, the individual can stay, but they just have to stop working. And if it was filed during their grace period, well, they could just stay, and they just didn't have work authorization to begin with. So that's why it's really, really important that if you know, oh, my STEM OPT expires on April 5th, um, you start that cap case even, though, even if you don't know whether you've been selected yet, so that when April 5th comes, you can timely file that cap case and get that work authorization until September 30th, as opposed to having to just sit around and, and wait until the H-1B cap case is approved or October 1st, whichever is later, to then begin working. Um, okay, what happens if the petition is denied or revoked, TJ? So then the, the cap gap extension will terminate. Um, so then you, would just ha you wouldn't get that cap gap anymore. Um, if the petition is still pending after September 30th, they're in a period of authorized stay, but like I said, they don't have the work authorization. That would only end, you know, September 30th. Um, and then you should make sure that when you file your H-1B cap case that it's not rejected. All your I's are dotted, your T's are crossed, the checks are signed, the checks are there and everything to make sure that it doesn't get rejected. So you do get that benefit of the cap cap. And then just to show that, you know, that the student has CAP-CAP authorization, they should go to their uh, designated school official and they can get an I-20 annotated to show that the H-1B petition was filed and they're in CAP-CAP. Wonderful. Thank you. What does CVIS recommend in situations for students? Are they allowed to travel? Are they, is it encouraged? Is it avoided? What, what should happen? But, um CVS actually strongly recommend, and we also strongly recommend, that they do not travel during the cap gap extension, if, especially if the, the petition is being filed for a change of status. Because when the petition is filed for change of status and the individual leaves the U.S., USCIS considers then the change of status request to be abandoned. But if the, the student travels outside, when the petition is pending, the petition was filed for change of status, then they should actually wait outside until the petition is approved and then obtain an H-1B visa based on that petition and come back in time to begin work on October 1. But if they come back, um, on F1, um, uh, you know, before the H-1B petition is approved and not getting an H visa, 
the change of status request is going to be denied. The petition will be approved, what we call only for consular processing, which means on October 1, the, the individual will not be on H-1B status. They will also lose their cap gap uh, because the change of status is going to be denied. And in order for them to get on H-1B status, they would have to leave the U.S., get the H-1B visa, and come back. So it will, you know, cause a lot of issues if you leave. First of all, if you leave. So secondly, if you leave and come back. So if you leave, stay back. Better if you don't leave. Um, now, if the beneficiary is not on F1 status and their current status will be expiring prior to September 30th, then the petition cannot be filed for a change of status because you have to remain in valid non-immigrant status in order to request a change of status. And that non-immigrant status has to continue through September 30th um, in order to request a change of status effective October 1. So those petitions have to be filed for consular processing and the individual must leave the U.S. or not before their current status expires and wait for the petition to be approved and then apply for the visa, H-1B visa, and return to the U.S. on H-1B status. Thank you, Kenya. This is very helpful. I'm sure it's a little bit confusing for those who are doing it for the first time. I know many people on this call are employers who do this routinely. So for you, it's obviously much clearer. For those who are newer, who are listening to it, that's why you hire a good legal team. You work with us or with any other law firm that you're comfortable, and they will hopefully hold your hand and guide you through the process. Uh, part of it, of course, has been the repeated changes on a lot of this that's been going on. And not just that there, even if there's no change in the law, just the administration's coming and changes of theirs and each one having a particular agenda, respecting and valuing every single worker who's living and working in America, working hard and paying taxes and doing everything right, especially when there's such a huge shortage of high-skilled professionals in the United States, particularly in the science, technology, engineering, and math and the STEM fields where there's a huge, huge gap between the needs, uh, the, the demand, and the supply. Talking about demand and supply, the government fees continue to constantly, constantly keep increasing. But just by way of a quick recap, filing fees for an H-1 petition, the base filing fee is $460, as most of you know. There's on top of that a $500 anti-fraud fee. Again, both of these... The fraud fee in particular, the employer to pay for that. The Department of Labor makes it clear. Plus, in addition, there's a training fee of either $750 or $1,500 based on if the employer has 25 or less employees. Uh, then they get the lower fee or anything more than 26 plus gets has to pay the $1,500 training fee and the third that was introduced a few years ago is a $4,000 border protection fee if the employer has 50 or more employees and more than 50% of the employees are either on H-1B and or L-1A, L-1B combined total. And an employer may be exempt from some or of the above, fee, above fees if they're filing a subsequent 
H-1B extension for the same employee or filing an amendment for the same employee. Of course, there's an optional now, a $2,500, which was $1,400 till a few weeks ago, till earlier this year, and then they changed the law, um, or till end of last year, I guess, $2,500 premium processing fee. But generally, each year, we find that during the cap filing season, uh, it tends to be suspended in part. But again, I don't know because the number of cap petitions has fallen so much more, and in general, the filings are spread out more, whether that will be suspended or not. So with that, let me jump to the next big issue of what are some of the most common issues encountered by IT consulting companies when it comes to H-1 petitions? Uh, by the way, although this is focused on IT companies, we have seen even non-tech uh, IT companies, you know, universities, hospitals, and other regular employers also getting RFEs or issues on these because sometimes the government throws the baby out with the bathwater. So let me have TJ jump in to go over the issue of, um, just to give us a quick overview of specialty occupation, the qualifications of the beneficiary, and maintenance of status. Sure. So I think, you know, especially particularly this, last, this past cap season, the, the biggest um, issues that we saw coming up in, in requests for evidence were whether the job is a specialty occupation, whether the beneficiary is qualified for the job, and whether the beneficiary has maintained his or her status up until the time of filing. That's generally we're seeing whether they've maintained their F1 status. So specialty occupation, we touched about this a little bit. It's the, it's a, you know, you got to show that the job itself requires at least a bachelor's degree in a specific field of study. One of the things to really, you know, key in here is when you're choosing the occupational classification for the job, there are certain occupational classifications that are going to be much more highly scrutinized, um, things like computer systems analyst. That's one that's very highly scrutinized. Marketing, research, marketing analyst and marketing specialist is, is very highly scrutinized. So there's, a, there's a court case going on that one right now, but it's, those are very highly scrutinized. So that's something to, to you know, take into consideration when, when filing the H-1B cap case. Also, have to make sure that the occupational classification actually does fit the job, right? I mean, I think we all know, lots of the IT consulting companies know that the software developer applications code is one of the stronger codes. But you can't put a computer systems analyst job into the, into the software developer applications occupational classification, or you're also asking for denial. So it's kind of a fine line to, to balance there. Um, another big issue that we're seeing, not quite as much because most people that we're seeing actually do, you know, going back to school for related degrees, but is qualifying for the job based on the education. Um, you know, lots of times in the past, if you're, you know, hiring someone for an IT position, a, me a mechanical engineering degree would have been fine, or uh, um, you know, some other type of engineering degree would have been fine for this IT job. Not anymore. Now you need to really show that the, that the degree is really directly related to the job. Um, so if it's not, if it's like you know, a mechanical engineering degree for an IT job or a business degree for an IT job, you really do need to get to show that the combination of education and experience is the equivalent of a related you know, IT degree. Um, and then the third thing that we really did, we saw this a whole bunch this cap season, is whether the beneficiary has maintained his or her F1 status. And, and in all honesty, you generally see this 
when the beneficiary goes to a, a couple schools that are known for you know, authorizing day one CPT, and most of their students are just there on F1 status and immediately just jump into CPT, you generally, you know, I don't want to call out any schools, but you're generally not seeing, you know, if they go to Harvard, whether they're maintaining their F1 status. You're not seeing those RFEs. So lots of our clients, I think, know who these schools are that really do get those RFEs frequently. It's asking generally, you know, whether the CTP, CPT is proper, um, whether the person has actually maintained a full course load. What we also see, um, not as much with the pandemic, but what we see is, oh, the person is, is working in California but going to school in Kentucky. Well, how can you really do that? Um, given the pandemic, lots of schools are permitted, at least since March of 2020, to go solely online. So that's not as big of a deal, but you do see that, and I anticipate we'll probably be seeing that coming up this CAP season as well. So those are the three you know, main things that we, we really have seen this year. And I think you know, there's employee-employee relationship. I think Connie is going to discuss this a little bit. We have not seen that as big of an issue this year. Kenya? Yes. So the employee-employee relationship became a huge issue, as you know, since 2018 when USCIS issued this policy memorandum uh, changing the definition of an employer-employee relationship and requiring employers to um, show that they have the right to control and the manner and means by which the work is done by the employee and that the control will continue for the entire H-1B duration. And they were required to show evidence that the employer had sufficient level of control over the employee when the employee is placed at a third-party location. So they were required to provide contracts between you know, each level, if they had a mid-vendor and then a client or a couple of mid-vendors. They were required to show all the contractual relationships, statements of work, letters from mid-vendors, letters from a client. So they were required this you know, huge burden um, of documentation to establish employee-employee relationship. Now, um, this was overturned in the IT Serve Alliance um, Inc. versus Cisna, where the court um, made the decision that it was irrational, arbitrary, and capricious for USCIS to require all these documents and corroborations um, with the, you know, evidence and, and temporary work assignments for three future years. So, um, you know, so USCIS actually uh, rescinded that memo. So now, uh, and when you know, and the employee-employee relationship now is lined up with the regulations and and not their arbitrary memo. Uh, so you know, so the employee-employee relationship can be shown by the employer being able to hire, pay, fire, supervise, or otherwise control the work of the employee. The or being, you know, the important um, um, uh, words there. So it, you can, you know, you just have to show one and not all of it. Um, so since then, we haven't actually seen any RFPs on the employee-employee relationship. However, you know, just keep it in mind because USCIS can, you know, promulgate regulations, you know, because they tried to do regulations by memo, so now they can actually try to do actual regulations and bring that back in. 
Um, so just to just to keep in in our mind uh, that this is you know this was a huge issue went away. There's a possibility of it you know coming up again. Thank you, um, Kenya. So as you can see, I know we're always extremely mindful of your time trying to keep these discussions between 30 to 45 minutes. So after all, in the middle of a week, generally on a Wednesday, and you're trying to juggle a bunch of stuff, but we like to keep you empowered, educated, help you to understand what's going on. One of the questions, of course, that we are being asked routinely is, will things change with the Biden administration? Uh, that is generally the hope that some of the harshest uh, policies, memos, etc., the damage that have, has been done uh, in the past four years against legal immigrants and legal immigration against tech companies, employers, IT companies, etc. To some extent, they've either been reversed or halted, or there's a 30-day, 90-day sort of halt in place, a time to review and recollect and refresh to see what to do. Um, however, um, Biden, Joe Biden has to be very careful because we still are in the middle of the pandemic. We, the, at the end is not very clear in sight. So to sum it up, it's a little early in the administration to get a sense of a clear trend of what Joe Biden will do. He has to continue to protect U.S. workers and U.S. workforce. But I think he seems to have a clear understanding that the H-1B employers and the H-1B employees need to be protected because they are helping the U.S. economy. They're creating more jobs and doing everything that's good and right for America and Americans in the long run. So with that hopeful uh, stand, I know it's been like, won't even be two weeks since he's been sworn into office uh, today on Wednesday. So what we want to say is, Let's keep our fingers crossed. Let's all of us continue to do the good work, continue to make America stronger and better by bringing the best and brightest from across the globe, giving them opportunities and helping you as employers bring in the best people to work for your company and thereby actually help create more jobs and help fuel the engine, the economic engine of the, this great country, the United States of America. With that said, on behalf of myself, Sheila Musi, on behalf of Kenya Sanders, TJ, and the entire Musi Law Firm team, we thank you for joining us today. We want to wish you a happy new year and certainly hope that 2021 gets all of us the vaccine and we're all back to totally being engaged with each other and meeting each other. And I look forward to meeting many of you in the near future. Stay safe, have a wonderful afternoon, and take care of yourself. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services, and more at www.murthy.com.